0: Welcome to the Politics of Disaster podcast, a series created by students of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in collaboration with the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope that you enjoy this episode in our four-part series.
1: Welcome to the final episode of this four-part series on the aftermath of the Beirut Blast. My name is Esther Feng, and I am a second-year concentrator in Middle East Studies here at Johns Hopkins University, SAIS. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Elsa Harb and Maimuna Gasama, who are second-year conflict management concentrators. In this episode, we are telling the often forgotten and untold story of what domestic migrant workers are experiencing in Lebanon today. Many workers lived in the neighborhoods closest to the port where the blast occurred and have been abandoned by their employers, the Lebanese government, and their home states. We try to explore some questions in this episode. Who are they? How did they get there? Where did they go from here? And who should be held accountable? We interviewed Dr. Lama
2: Murad, an expert on vulnerable populations and state capacity in Lebanon. I'm an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and I'm trained as a political scientist, but I my work I consider to be quite interdisciplinary. I draw a lot on anthropology, sociology, urban studies, um, to look at issues related to migration and refugees, local governance, and my regional focus is on the Middle East, um, and I focus even more specifically on Lebanon in most of my work. I'm currently working on a book project that looks at the subnational politics of the response to the Syrian refugee influx in Lebanon
1: and far baba
3: my name is Farah Baba. I work as the communications and advocacy officer at the anti-racism movement in Lebanon. Yeah, I'm going to just very briefly talk about the organization and what we do. So ARMS started around 10 years ago when a migrant domestic worker was denied entry to a very famous private pool in Beirut. And a group of Lebanese feminists and migrant activists went and filmed their reaction and the arguments of the management to deny her entry. And since then, many people started organizing together to try to to have or create a safe space for migrant workers and migrant domestic workers where they can organize for their rights and specifically where they can organize to lobby or to advocate uh, for the abolishment of the kafala system. And since then, the biggest project that ARM has had has been the, the Migrant Community Center. Uh, we've had four branches, of course, because of the lockdown and the pandemic situation, we had to close temporarily, but we're going to open them again very soon. So Basically, the Migrant Community Centers are space uh, run by and for migrant workers and migrant and domestic workers and refugees where they can have they can meet, uh, where they can organize and hold and organize cultural and social events and where they can have workshops and learn skills and languages. We're so glad to have
1: both Dr. Murad and Farah on our show. Without further ado, we begin with Elsa and Dr. Murad discussing the kafala system and how migrant workers have been impacted
0: by the blast.
4: Just a warning to our listeners, this podcast has descriptions of physical and sexual abuse. As we've mentioned, today we're talking about the migrant domestic workers in Lebanon. So I was wondering if you could give us some background on that system and about them.
2: Kind of at the most basic level, the legal system that governs the presence of migrant domestic workers in Lebanon is is known as the kafala system. Uh, or sponsorship system. And this is a, a legal regime that you can find quite widely across the Middle East. So in the Gulf states, it's used on a wider set of migrant workers, while in Jordan and Lebanon, it's primarily associated and tied to migrant domestic workers. Though, it, like I want to point out that more recently, Syrians in Lebanon also require a form of sponsorship, also a kafir, though you know, their residency requirements differ in important ways from the kafala system as it relates to migrant domestic workers. So specifically with regards to migrant domestic workers, the really distinguishing factor is that the employee's immigration and legal status in the country is tied to their employer and that they can't change their employer without the approval of the current person who has sponsored their visa. And so what that means is that places uh, migrant domestic workers at greater risk of exploitation and abuse because employers can always hang over them their legal status in the country and those who leave their employers without getting the requisite permission risk losing their legal status in the country and face detention deportation and effectively all of their legal rights in the country
4: Right. So how has that system been in question lately, especially given the pandemic and the economic crisis?
2: I don't know if the system itself is in question because of the pandemic. I think there's been a lot of calls and questions about the system prior to the pandemic, and this is kind of an ongoing and, and major issue of concern for activists in the country, some who are, you know, migrant domestic workers themselves. And it's it's an issue that's gained a lot of press and human rights concerns. You know, Human Rights Watch has written a number of reports on this over the years as well. So this is not necessarily something that really came into question at this moment, but the pandemic and the economic crisis that lebanon has faced over the last year has made it such that migrant domestic workers are effectively you know many if not most of them we don't really have great figures on this are no longer uh, you know being paid by their employers or even if they are being paid the value of their salaries has decreased so precipitously that it's become almost worthless. And so their presence in the country has become much more precarious. Mm. So we've seen uh, over the last months, you know, there's been so many photos of dozens of migrant domestic workers, Ethiopians, Sri Lankans, Nigerians, Bangladeshis, Kenyans, you know, from really all across the countries that send migrant domestic workers to are protesting in front of their embassies, they're sleeping in the streets. So the visibility of the precarity of this category of migrant workers has become much more visible uh, due to the crisis. And there's been incredible advocacy work on this issue by associations on the ground that's also kind of elevated this work. But to give you kind of a sense of how much the economic crisis has affected wages, just as one example, you know, a migrant domestic worker in Lebanon could earn 300,000 lira per month, for instance. And prior to the devaluation of the lira, that was equivalent to $200 USD that she could send back to her family abroad. Now, you know, as we talk today, obviously the, the value of the lira is, is still in flux. But as we talked today, the same salary, so that's assuming that she's still getting paid, is the equivalent of about $35. So even those who, who perhaps were still getting paid, you know, it may not be worthwhile for them to continue to be working in Lebanon, considering their ability to send money abroad to their families and these, these kinds of things. So they were really very hard hit in this crisis. And Many of their countries have not stepped up to the plate to support them to go back home. And the kafala system exacerbates all of this, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, you can't actually leave your employer without their permission, without facing legal consequences. So in addition to the financial burdens that the crisis has placed, it also means that any migrant domestic worker who has fled their employer cannot leave the country without the approval of their employer, even if they were to amass the funds necessary, they'd face a legal hurdle in leaving the country. And many employers, it's been documented, are actually often pressing false charges against their workers in order to not have to pay for their return ticket home, which they're legally required to in the contracts that they sign for these workers, right? So they face these legal hurdles, even if they are to amass the funds necessary. So for instance, lots of organizations are raising funds, but they're saying some of the biggest hurdles actually getting a general amnesty, for instance, for migrant domestic workers, so that even if they were able to get the money, they would actually be able to, to send them back home. So it's a pretty complicated picture.
4: And just to add on another crisis, how has this been affected by the August Beirut port explosion and sort of the aftermath of it? What particular challenges are migrant domestic workers facing in this aftermath?
2: That's a really good question. And the August 4th blast had, I think the, the effects of the blast can be separated into a number of different elements. So the first is, of course, the the direct victims of the blast, those who lost their lives. And we know that there are most likely were, uh, migrant domestic workers among the victims of the blast, although we have no official figures on that, neither from the Lebanese government nor from any other organizations necessarily. Uh, we do know that a couple of, um, I think it was, Over 30, by my last time I I read it, uh, Syrians were killed in the blast. So we know migrant workers were killed, but we don't, not necessarily migrant domestic workers. But we, we know that the neighborhoods that were affected by the blast had large numbers of migrant domestic workers living in them and so it's you know if not direct victims in the sense of those who passed away there were definitely those among the injured and those who lost their homes and livelihoods in those neighborhoods in a in a kind of direct way and then the consequences of the blast were also felt by further exacerbating of the economic situation in the country right so the port itself was you know a major conduit of economic activity in the country. And even outside of the capital, the debilitation of the port and the area around the port, which was a major economic center in in the country, uh, had effects on labor across the country. And so essentially what we had is an, almost a doubling down of the existing situation just getting much, much worse. And of course, uh, you know, rates of uh, homelessness and people finding themselves unhoused and were really exacerbated by the blast. And migrant domestic workers who were living independently, who had often you know, fled employers, but who often live in the country for years and have independent businesses, what are often called in Lebanon you know, freelancers, they, they live in many of those neighborhoods that were closest to the port. So there's been definitely since August 4th, we can see... There's been many more demands for repatriation, a lot more demands of, you know, migrant domestic workers who want to return their home countries. And generally speaking, the economic situation for Lebanese has become so deteriorated that many people who otherwise had uh, or had the means to have migrant domestic workers in their homes no longer have that possibility. And then I guess one, one kind of final element of the consequence of the blast that's worth mentioning is really in terms of relief efforts. So, you know, the majority of relief efforts have really focused on Lebanese nationals, and there's been a number of reports of discrimination. Farah expands on
3: the specific discrimination migrants faced during the aftermath of the blast. lot of those initiatives were going to to the houses that survived to distribute food and hygiene kits and masks and everything and to check the damages of the houses and to assess how much it would cost and what exactly is needed to repair the houses. We have had so many stories by migrant members of our centers and other people that they know, whereby basically the volunteer would knock and if a migrant worker or a visibly uh, migrant worker, like someone who looks Filipino or someone who is black, opens to them, the volunteer would ask, uh, hey, do you live here or do you work here? And if the migrant worker says, uh, no, I live here, the volunteer would say, oh, sorry, we only help Lebanese people, and they would just walk away. Wow. Um, so, uh, But if the migrant worker says, no, I work here for a Lebanese employer, they would uh, give food box and hygiene products and masks and everything, and they would come in to assess the damages. So it's been very bad in terms of relief response. Elza and Dr. Murad explore the oppressive systems that uphold the
1: kafala system.
4: Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of Lebanese people especially talking about how they're suffering, so why should they help these other people, right? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit further about that, about how even within the migrant domestic communities, there are certain hierarchies, particularly around
2: the issue of race. Yeah, so I mean, I guess there are two parts to your question there one is among the kind of the way in which the lebanese view others in their community and of whether that be all kinds of migrants and their relationship to to them and then within the migrant communities themselves you know if we were to think of it as, as sort of layered there's definitely an issue uh i this is not you know this is again not only true in in lebanon it, it's something that you know we know happens all over the world in times of acute crisis it's very common for kind of xenophobic scapegoating of migrants and others, right? People who who are not like us. And this is definitely something that in Lebanon was fueled by politicians, in particular, uh, a certain set of, of national politicians, but also, you know, even municipal officials and, and others who effectively... Uh, Tried to play people off each other, right? And said that, you know, we're in this financial situation, we're in this economic situation because either we have taken in too many refugees, or like we hear often in Lebanon about the previous issues that Lebanon has faced that were often blamed on Palestinians. This is kind of a recurrent theme to try to blame others for the problems of the country. And again, this is something that's been really fanned by certain politicians, Gibran Basile being a particularly prominent one.
1: Farah also shares more about how xenophobia influences state
3: actions. To make things even worse, immediately a lot of relief initiatives and organizations suddenly went to to the rescue however it was uh, really bad in terms of exclusion of migrant workers uh, specifically so that area happens to be close to a conventionally or or to to offices of certain right-wing political parties who are very nationalistic very patriotic and so a lot of the relief initiatives and organizations were affiliated with those political parties and th- there are a lot of parking lots inter- when there is a disaster many people mm-hmm. stands with uh, writing or or stating what services they offer or what kind of assistance they offer. And unfortunately, many of those initiatives had banners that said, they wrote it in Arabic, but I'm going to translate, they literally said, if you are not Lebanese, go beg somewhere else. So it was very bad. Um, So migrant workers did not even dare go near um, uh, those uh, stands to request help.
1: Mahmouda continues the discussion with Farah.
0: I guess, obviously, the question of accountability is always important. So in your opinion, who do you think should be held accountable? The Lebanese government, origin countries for domestic workers, their employers? Should it be more of an international crisis?
3: So, of course, it's an entire system of modern day slavery that is enabling or that is built on all of these uh, practices and violations. However, I think that the first point of, for accountability should be employers. Um, and this is something we've been trying to lobby for before the explosion, of course, because they're the person with the most amount of power and authority over the life of a migrant domestic worker or a migrant worker and definitely the the recruitment agencies that are based in lebanon and that coordinate with other recruitment agencies in in the countries of origin of migrant workers so just for a bit of context what happens when a migrant worker or migrant domestic worker comes into lebanon is that she goes to a recruitment agency in her country for example let's say ethiopia uh, Mm -hmm. or sierra leone because i'm going to talk about trafficking and basically this Recruitment agency in Sierra Leone uh, lies to the, either lies to the woman and tells her, oh, you're going to come to Lebanon to work as a teacher or as a receptionist or as a nurse they do not tell her that she would be working as a domestic worker. Or mm-hmm. on the other hand, what that's not the case. What happens is they tell the woman that she would work as a domestic worker. Uh, they lie about the salary. Um, they do not say that there is a chance or most likely she will be paid in Lebanese pounds. And mm-hmm. they do not talk about the working conditions. They do not mention the kafala system. They do not mention that uh, she will be legally tied to a Lebanese person who has full authority to do whatever they want to her. And that is a form of trafficking. Of course, human trafficking and differs or the, the criteria for human trafficking differ from one country to another um, but that it's a form of human trafficking so and all of this happens in coordination with recruitment agencies based in Lebanon um, and just to note recruitment agencies and the syndicate of the recruitment agencies is a very strong lobby group that has a lot of power in Lebanon and they yeah. alter a lot of the decisions or a lot of the uh, reforms or changes that are in favor of migrant workers and migrant domestic workers. Uh, A lot of them are involved in trafficking and smuggling and lying and deceiving migrant domestic workers. So they definitely have a share of accountability that should be served. So a lot of them are also very, very involved in physical and sexual abuse of migrant Mm -hmm. domestic workers and in actually telling the employer what to do to the workers. So the norm is, or the usual scenario is... Let's say I'm a Lebanese person, I want to employ a domestic worker, I go to a recruitment agency, and the person running the agency, after I pick pers- after I pick a domestic worker, and that's literally how it goes, I go and pick, and the person running the recruitment agency would basically go through a protocol with me and would tell me, okay, so before you get home, take her passport, take her phone. If she uh, acts or says anything rude to you, you can hit her, you can call us and we will come, or, or you can bring her to our office and we will... Uh, beat her up so that she can obey you again. Um, That's usually the norm. So uh, recruitment agencies are very, very complicit um, in the entire process of recruitment and deception, smuggling and trafficking. And Mm -hmm. um, of course, not to mention that they make literally a fortune out of this business. So it's definitely employers and recruitment agencies as a first step uh, for accountability. And definitely the Lebanese authorities in terms of how they deliberately neglect the suffering and the the complaints um, of migrant domestic workers. And that's the tricky part of the kafala system. So um, let's say a domestic worker uh, flees an employer's house and goes to complain to the general security to to complain about being abused uh, verbally or sexually or physically. Most of the time the employer already beat her and went before her to the general secretary to report that she has fled so that they can um, absolve themselves from any responsibility. And in case where the employer goes first to to submit a complaint, this by default renders or... makes kind of leaves the the domestic worker without any rights at all she already had she barely had any rights to begin with but mm-hmm. the employer goes before her to report that she has fled or to falsely accuse her of trying to steal or to harm them by default this makes uh, this uh, takes away any right she barely had so definitely the general security and the Lebanese authorities are complicit in this yeah, um, yeah. So Lebanese employers, recruitment agencies, as well as uh, Lebanese authorities that do not take the plight of domestic workers and migrant domestic workers seriously.
0: Your organization works at the intersection of anti-racism and abolishing the kafala system. So can you tell us a bit more about how anti-Blackness and racism factor into the system?
3: Definitely. So basically, um, you know how, unfortunately, when George Floyd was murdered in the U.S. a few months ago, uh, early in the summer, a lot of solidarity protests and movements started in different countries in the world. So mm-hmm. in Lebanon, when we uh, when we tried to do that as uh, not just as armed, but also as other groups and uh, as migrant activists. It didn't really work because there was an emergency to respond to, and that's when the Ethiopian domestic workers in particular started being uh, literally abandoned and dumped by employers at the consulate in Beirut. So uh, that movement didn't really pick up in Lebanon. Another way that this was brought to light is uh, all of the awareness that happened around anti-blackness in Lebanon, specifically highlighting the kafala system and the racializing element or the the racial element that it is based upon. So for example, just to give a very tangible everyday examples when it comes to anti-blackness. So there isn't really anything written in as a law under kafala system or anything about salaries, but it is a very common practice for Lebanese employers and recruitment agencies to pay less to um, African domestic workers than they would pay to, for example, Nepalese or Filipino uh, domestic workers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how to quantify or to track the source of this, but there is a culture or a, like a common perception among Lebanese people that basically about about racialized bodies and about black bodies that were much superior because we're Lebanese and we're kind of exceptional among all of the other Middle Eastern and Arab countries because we're much we have much more freedom or we kind of there's this notion that we kind of belong to the global north and not to the global south because we're not all brown which is of course not accurate at all but there is this kind of culture that is reinforced especially when it comes to migrant domestic workers so when it comes to migrant domestic workers in the kafala system this is usually translated by literally by employers literally telling the domestic worker that is coming for example from Nigeria or Cameroon or Ivory Coast or Sierra Leone usually this translated by telling them that oh you're coming from a very poor country and uh, so we're not gonna pay you a salary but you should be grateful that we're giving you a place to stay and we're not charging you for the food you eat at our home Um, so Usually, this is much more common against domestic workers coming from African countries. In contrast, usually Filipino and uh, Nepalese domestic workers are viewed as uh, much more educated or sophisticated, and uh, to the extent that employers, or especially uh, Lebanese women who are the employers, would uh, trust them with uh, educating the kids at home and speaking English to them. And uh, of course, not to mention that there is a supremacist element in all of this, whereby Lebanese people consider that black bodies are racialized by bodies Are inferior and they are not as worthy of uh, rights as other uh, lighter skinned domestic workers. But again, I'm not sure exactly where this comes from. Uh, this is a very common perception and practice among Lebanese employers in particular. And we've, you know, as kids, we always, we always also hear this from um, other relatives who are Lebanese who employ domestic workers. Um, And as you can imagine, this is also very supremacist in nature because it assumes that one people is superior to to another just because of the skin color. And um, a lot of the time, even recruitment agencies and the general security or the Lebanese authorities here also use that argument to to kind of downplay or to justify abuse specifically against uh, African domestic workers in Lebanon.
0: So it's like for a system that's already pretty exploitive, it's like being Black adds a whole other level to it.
3: Definitely, yeah.
0: Yeah. This is kind of a two-part question. So how do you think your work, or in general the work of ARM, fits into the Black Lives Matter movement And do you see the younger generation pushing more for the abolishment of the kafala system or like with the Black Lives Matter movement in Lebanon in general?
3: I would say that our work as the anti-racism movement fits into the global Black Lives Matter movement uh, through the migrant community centers. So what we've been trying to do in the past years is to provide the space for migrant workers um, without speaking in their name. So mm-hmm. a way, it's a way to to practice good allyship or to explore ways to be good allies and supporters without co-opting um, their struggle or without uh, trying to guide their activism and their their organizing for their rights so that's one aspect another aspect i would say the joint efforts with migrant activists here and in the countries of origin of migrant mm-hmm. workers to uh, to try to bring or to kind of make it more mainstream the uh, the racial element and all of the plight of migrant domestic workers in Lebanon uh, by highlighting the intersection of race and class in an intersectional approach through our activism here and in their countries by highlighting for example the supremacist or the racial element or basis uh, on which the kafala system is built um, and not just the kafala system in practice but also as a culture as a as a way of thinking uh, Mm. that the Lebanese people are superior just because they happen to be a bit more light-skinned than the average Middle Eastern person. So I would say that our work or or, um, grassroots organizing with migrant workers specifically Mm -hmm. from an intersectional or following an intersectional approach fits into the Black Lives Matter movement uh, globally, but also trying to sit on the side for a while and to to have a safe space for for migrants themselves to to be part of the movement and to guide the movement itself in Lebanon in coordination with people in their countries, uh, whether it's feminist groups. In in their countries or non governmental organizations or governmental agencies, that's rare. But in some countries, there are uh, good governmental agencies that try to to combat human trafficking, specifically of African migrant domestic workers into into the Middle East, including Lebanon. So it's all it all. I would say kind of boils down to an intersectional standpoint by highlighting the racial and the racist element in the kafala system in Lebanon. Because, I mean, as you can imagine, a lot of Lebanese people are racist because they learned that. But at the same time, they really downplay the racial element in the kafala system and in the struggle or or the plight of migrant domestic workers. I would say that our work fits there by uh, trying to push this more to the mainstream to deconstruct mm-hmm. it, and to to really um, highlight it, both online and offline.
1: Hi, listeners. That's the end of our show. Thank you again to Dr. Lama Murad and Farah Baba for joining us on our show. We are so grateful for your insight and thoughtful discussion. The challenges that domestic migrant workers face in Lebanon are not isolated, but impacted by several external factors, especially in relation to the wider global issue of anti-blackness and the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United States. Given how black domestic workers are treated and the racism they face in Lebanon, it is vital that we shed light on their untold story to demand accountability for the injustices they face. The Beirut Blast has impacted everyone that resides in Lebanon. However, there are still groups like migrant workers that are being left in the shadows after being denied much-needed support. We hope that this podcast will spark an interest in the realities of domestic workers in Lebanon and around the world. If you would like to stay informed and involved, you can follow ARM via their Twitter. Their handle is ARM underscore Lebanon. They have virtual volunteer opportunities, so please check them out. We invite you to listen to the other three episodes in our series. Thank you.